0: With me to the eighth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter eight. I'm conflicted. I said humorously the other day when I'd missed the Lord's Day with sickness that it was wrong to preach from Romans 8 when you didn't feel well. I don't feel well today and it's a, a migraine. I don't mention it for pity. I mention it for explanation because I would rather have more energy and feel better to preach on what I hope to preach to you upon today. So I just say that to ask you to receive more than I can give today. But again, that's really always the way it is in preaching. It is when the Lord speaks that we hear and benefit. I want to begin reading in Romans 8, and we'll start reading today in verse 28. Well, yeah. Let's back up. I want to read from verse 17. So turn to verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise also the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What should we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We trust the Lord's own blessing to be on the public reading of His inspired Word. Let's do with the Word open and read before us, bow our heads and hearts together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We come today asking that as we have read these remarkable words that you will by the same spirit that we possess and we read intercedes for us uh, give us help in preaching and hearing the glorious truth of this tremendous promise. And so, Lord, help us in these moments. Now we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you look with me again in verse 17 of our chapter, it is in this remarkable chapter that Paul almost inexplicably, certainly unexpectedly, introduces a subject of suffering. Reading again the words of verse 17, If children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Paul has reached the end, if you will, of that string of gospel events and the purpose of God. The glorification of His people. But he introduces in this text, I say, in some ways unexpectedly, but quite realistically, the topic of suffering in a verse that has brought us all the way to glorification. And so then, the section that we looked at last week, from verses 18 down to verse 27, Paul pauses, as it were. He's brought us to glorification, but having mentioned suffering, he steps back, and he says, For the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we saw that section last Lord's Day encompassed really with waiting. And we entitled it Waiting for Glory. And again, that waiting conjoined with hope. There's, there's expectancy. There's no doubtfulness. There's no uncertainty about any of the things that the Apostle put before us in those days. But Paul began to elaborate further. He began to convey large thoughts. Thoughts that certainly apply to the individual, but brought them right home even to this creation itself. The impact of the fall of our first head, Adam, as to have had dominion over this creation, sinning against his creator, plunged that over which he was to reign into ruin. And the whole creation groans and travails together in pain. Paul said, not only the creation itself, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan, waiting, waiting for another day. Waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. Waiting, as we said, for glory. But as Paul speaks of suffering and of hope, he's compelled to elaborate further. It's not just that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That is obviously and wonderfully true. But he begins in the section that we read today and close out the chapter in verse 28. To say not only are these sufferings not worthy to be compared with the glory. But in the midst of enduring these sufferings, God is working them for good. We can patiently endure because we know there's a good end. There's a good and loving purpose behind them. And Paul enters into this section which, I mean, it's harder to find a greater highlight, if you will, in all the Word of God. Paul comes to exclamations of heart and soul here of the truths of the Gospel and their impact upon us as the people of God. I want to look at this section, this is certainly perhaps among all the chapters so far, hard to just take it a paragraph as it were at a time in these big chunks because there's so much here. But I want to look here today, if we suggested last week that section to be entitled Waiting for Glory, this section we would entitle No Doubts About Glory. No Doubts About glory those sufferings that he's mentioned that aren't worthy to be compared he now in that giant text verse 28 tells us that they themselves work together for good how can even that be and it begins this section that is so precious and so sadly controversial in the minds of many of the Lord's people but we read again verse 28 we know that all things work together for good to them that love God Just pause. One of the commentators that I've really enjoyed reading suggested and gave the statistics that this is really a slightly unusual way to refer to Christians in the New Testament. It's not that this is the only place, but other places like we remember in Thessalonians, we are the beloved of God. And the Scriptures speak so much of God's love for us. But what better place when these truths that he's unfolding, not only of the work of God for us as we have said, but the work of God in us to describe God's people as them that love God. And of course, we love him because he first loved us. And if our love ever begins to wane or wax cold, then of course the best thing to do is to be reminded of his love for us. One of the ironies so often, whether it's in preaching or whether it's in our own personal lives, we sense a coldness and a lax and we can push ourselves to the law, which we've seen in chapter 7 is good and right and it is what we are to pursue and model our lives after, but there's no power in it. It's the Spirit that works that in us. And one of the things the Spirit does, as we saw last time, is it takes of the things concerning Christ and shows them unto us. Us. And so we, seeing these things, are described as them that love God. How can we not? As we've sung, I sought the Lord. Afterward, I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. And so he continues, and he says, To them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, that effectual call, that special work of grace upon those who are all undeserving, As we come today to consider this section, I want really to look at it in two very simple heads. Verses 28 to 30. Look with me at the unchangeable purpose of God. The unchangeable purpose of God. Everything that follows these verses will see five specific statements of things that God does in and for us. In the outworking of the gospel. But all of these flow from that phrase according to his purpose. And this is a purpose as Romans has already unfolded from beginning till here all of grace. It's just as he told the nation of Israel it wasn't because you were more numerous or better than any of the other nations that I chose you and called you and separated you unto myself, you were the least of people. I chose you because I chose you. I loved you because I loved you. The unchangeable purpose of God. And according to this purpose, we read verses 28 and 30. Whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Another description of what He's doing in His people. Conforming us to the image of Christ Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn. Think even of the truths of that, the guarantee, the preeminent one among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate them, he also called. Whom he called them, he also justified. And whom he justified them, he also glorified. This golden chain of gospel events is really where the apostle brings and closes out, really, his exposition of the gospel. Say more about that as we transition into chapter 9. But here, I say the unchangeable purpose of God. I want to take just a little journey in other scriptures because there's an important truth here. I'm sure we've Rehearsed it from different directions before. I know we've handled it in Sunday school classes, looking at the doctrines of grace. But this first link, if you will, in the chain, in this outworking of his eternal purpose, foreknowledge. So often it is in the minds of many a foreknowledge of those who would believe. And based upon that exercise of faith, God then would choose these unto himself. In many circles, it's not preached with the proper theological title affixed to it, but this is called conditional election. That God chose because He knew you would do this, and ultimately it's God responding to our choice. Where the Scripture unfolds that it's not God who is responding to us, it is we who are responding to Him. I want you to turn over to 1 Peter, if you will. Perhaps the most familiar text in this view of a conditional election is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. We read here, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. Notice here, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Even in this text itself, which is so often used to teach a conditional election, it shows that it's really folly to draw that from the text because what is obedience uh, unto the faith? But our act of believing. That's in response to what God has done. But I want you to look with me here from this verse. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Go back now to the book of Acts, chapter two. Acts chapter two and Paul, or excuse me, Peter's great Pentecostal sermon. We read a giant text in verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. We've spoken in the past about one of the cardinal rules of Greek grammar. It applies in this text here. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. I won't try and get into the particulars, but when you have two grammatical equals that are joined by the word often translated and, but it can be translated also, it can be translated even. And this, in many texts, I think it should receive the translation of even. But when only the first of these two has the article, then they're referring to the same thing. Probably told the story about in Greek class, when they were going over this, they used Titus 2.13, which speaks about the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. The rule applies there. It's a proof text for the deity of Christ. It was taken back because the rule applies in two places. Uh, the blessed hope, even the glorious appearing. Um, that one kind of got passed over. But here in Acts, foreknowledge is one of those things joined together with what? The determinate counsel of God God's foreknowledge is his determinate counsel it's not his response to a foreseen event it's his determinate counsel it's the outworking of his purpose and actually if we go back to first Peter we find that remarkably demonstrated in this passage that's so often used to teach another view of election if you over, go over in cha- the same chapter to verse 20, speaking of Christ, Peter says, "...who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you." What is translated foreknow in this text in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the same word is translated foreordained with regard to Christ in eternity past. So everything has to do, clearly, with God's purpose. His own electing purpose. His own outworking of His plan. Not responding to ours. And so Paul begins this golden thread of unshakable events. I say in the unchangeable purpose of God. Each of them is a study in itself. We just did a little many one of reference to foreknowledge. And then predestination based upon that determinate counsel. And again, not because of anything in us. We, as Israel of old, in that great picture of the gospel and their redemption from Egypt, there's nothing in us as believers that God could look at and see as worthy. No action we take, others fail to take, that He says, oh, there's a good one I'll choose him? No. As he'll unfold in chapter 9, his gifts, his calling, according to his sovereign plan. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And as we read, moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, whom he called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. If you study theology, and you come to a a point of study called the order of salvation or the ordo salutis in the Latin terms, here's a place in Scripture where we have that very thing put before us. Not everything in the sequence is included. Sanctification is not listed here, but yet, In many ways, it's been the subject of chapters 6 and 7 already. But the point in this, that eternal purpose, whereby in time He enters in and then calls us, and that calling we see and have seen through the New Testament Scriptures and the Old, descriptive of that awakening work in us. He calls us and He justifies us And He glorifies us. And there's no break in the chain. There's no all in this case and some in this case. There's a people as Christ describes in the Gospels given unto Him in eternity past by the Father for whom He does all of these things. And if you come to read verse 32 as we jump ahead into our second section, but we come back. He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? This in itself, which we may come to a little more this evening. We see the solemnity. We see the awfulness of this purchase price. But he spared not his own son. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If you look at this text, what it is putting before us is a simple truth. What Christ has purchased must be applied. There are none that are predestined that aren't called. There are none who are called that aren't justified. There are none who are justified that aren't glorified. This is the unchangeable purpose of God. This unbroken thread of these gifts of salvation. The work done for us and done in us. And no lacking in any of them. And that's where we come to verse 31. The second of our major sections here today. What shall we say? (coughs) What shall we then say to these things? Think with me here for a moment on the unshakable confidence of the believer. There's more of Romans to come. We'll certainly have to discuss chapters 9 to 11, which many suggest is a parenthesis. I think that's really wrong. I think what Paul is doing is he's just having stated another truth, having summed up really a whole argument, a whole presentation of the gospel. There's another natural question that's going to pop into your mind. Well, what about Israel? Well, what we come to in verse 31 down to verse 39 really is Paul's summation or his exclamation based on the summation he's already given of the gospel of Christ. He's taken us from depravity. He's shown us our willful inability. He's shown us whether we're religious or irreligious. We're subjects of the law of God. We're condemned by it. Have no possibility of being saved by it. He's given us that glorious paragraph of chapter 3. And then He's unfolded doctrine by doctrine in the chapters that have followed. He's brought us to this point of an undeniable glory for the people of God. And he says, what shall we then say to these things? How do we respond to a gospel like this? If God be for us, who can be against us? And he begins to unfold this wonderful, remarkable song, really, of the believer. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And then a series of questions. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. This isn't something we've thought up, this isn't something that we've managed to work up ourselves. It's a justification purposed, planned, and worked entirely by God Himself. And if God justifies us, if God does not see any condemnation in us as this chapter is opened, there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Who can lay anything to our charge? There are no charges to be heard. Christ has taken them all. He asked then again, Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died. I love to quote, whether audibly or in my own soul, the words of verse 34. Who is He that condemneth? I know we have it translated, it is Christ that died, and then carries on to the resurrection. But just the truth: Christ has died. Who can condemn those for whom He died? He's borne the condemnation. There doesn't remain any condemnation for them. There's nothing lacking in His payment of the penalty of His broken law on our behalf. We can't be condemned. Can you just imagine someone seeking to enter in and lay charge against us? And Christ intervenes? We might think it the imagination of a poet if we didn't have Christ's own words to Thomas in the upper room. Rich wounds, yet visible above. Who is he that condemneth? Christ intervenes and shows his wounded hands inside. We can think of an enemy in the flesh. Someone doesn't care for us. Think of that great accuser of the brethren. Go further even than that. Think of the law of God itself. It can't condemn us. Paul has taught us we're dead to the law because Christ has paid the penalty of the law for His people. And so He just cannot contain Himself. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? The obvious answer, nobody. God's the one that's justifying us. The one we owe the debt to. And we're justified. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He's already mentioned the Spirit's intercession, but Christ himself pleading the merits of his blood, pleading the efficacy of his work. We can't be condemned. What is the resurrection itself? But divine testimony to the successful work of Christ. To the victory of his redemption. Death can't hold him. The law has been satisfied with regard to precept and penalty. He's risen and ascended, and as Paul will tell us elsewhere, we're seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he comes in this string from verse 35 that closes out the chapter. I love again the words of Octavius Winslow, but actually in studying a little bit for Romans this time, I think he borrowed it from someone else. The chapter that opens with no condemnation closes with no separation. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Just look at that string of questions. Who will lay anything to our charge? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us from Christ? Shall tribulation, think of those things that aren't worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Think of that text we saw last time. The revelation. Creation waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. We cannot in any way detract from the revelation, the second advent of the only begotten Son. But we will be revealed with him It is on that day, and that day alone, that day, for the first time, that the completed church, the glorified church, will be revealed with him, as He is revealed to this world. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, persecution? You know, a lot of these things are mere theory to us prosperous Westerners. But we tremble at times reading the news and thinking a little bit about history. We could know some of these things. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we're killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughters, he quotes Isaiah. Nay, and all these things that again can only work together for our good. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither, I always love that he puts this first, death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What shall we say to these things? What do we conclude from all that we've seen from this gospel of our utter helplessness, our wicked rebellion to the glorious grace of God and choosing us, and drawing us unto Himself, and giving us Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? And that's why we can sing as we so often do, great God of wonders. Who's like you? And to say that the wonders of His grace above His other wonders shine. Paul will say in Ephesians, can we even paraphrase it in this way, God is going to enjoy an eternity future as we so feebly speak, manifesting the riches of his grace to principalities and powers in this people that he gave to Christ, that he gave Christ for what shall we say to these things? What can we say but to borrow the repeated refrain from the Psalter? Hallelujah! Praise the Lord. If we see in that section of last week, in these groaning days and years of our earthly life as God's people, confident, Hope, expectation, waiting for glory. We read in this closing of this remarkable chapter, no doubts about glory. If God has given up Christ for this to be accomplished, how can it be denied? How will He not with Him also freely? Again, a term of grace. Freely give us all things. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we ask today the help of your Spirit in reading and wrestling with things that are in many ways quite deep. And yet, in other ways, exceedingly simple. All you were obligated to do was cast us into hell. What you chose to do is remarkable. What shall we say to these things? Praised be our God. We ask and pray these very things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.